Well, that was unscripted. Uh, I told you I, I only have a trivia day. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Kill the Cast. My name is Jerry, and joining me, as always, is the ever-quotable Jay. Sluts and liars they are, but tardy they are not. That is very true. They're, they have <laughs> attention to details. And uh, the Silent Hill biker himself, Kenneth, is also here. Hi. And joining us for this very special episode is director of The Scare House from 2014, which was in the June 2017 horror pack for Blu-ray, Gavin Michael Booth. What's up, y'all? Uh, Jay, thank you. You just warmed my, my heart there, remembering a quote from my film. Yeah, Jay always does a quote, and if he doesn't, we make fun of him. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I drop the ball on that. Because <laughs> we do, uh, he does his quote, and then when I edit the podcast, I put it out, and I have another quote from the movie over the Exorcist theme. Nice. So, without further ado, uh, Jay... What have you been doing this week? Ugh, work, paying bills. Um, I saw Spider Man today. That was good. Uh, we have a friend. That, we have a friend in it who plays uh, Scorpion. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I gotta go check it out real soon. Very nice, uh, Kenneth. What have you been doing? Driving all over the place. Uh, went to Florida. Went to Savannah. All in the same week. And uh, other than that, not really a whole lot. Uh, I've watched uh, The Scare House. Uh, this right now will be actually my fourth time. So, uh, which, you know, it's worth watching four times because it's actually pretty good. You got me and, beat by uh, one. Huh? I, you got me beat by one because I've, I've went through it three times. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and so I'm you, not just saying that guys, because. You, guys have, you have me beat because I only watched it once all the way through. About two months ago. I mean, I, I did all. I edited the film, and when it was done, you know, like days before it had its world premiere, I, I rarely ever watch my films at my premieres. Uh, usually, you know, part nerves, part just out of town family and stuff. I'd rather go have a drink at a bar with them and then just kind of, you know, see it at some other time. But but through circumstance, no matter what happened at every festival it played at everything i always ended up missing the screening and the one time i was going to sit down in the theater and finally watch it um i just shot something for blumhouse and we went uh we had worked all night on it and then it was a midnight screening at a festival i'm like i'm finally gonna watch it i sat in the theater and by the time the opening credits were done uh, i was i'm like i'm gonna live tweet the movie it'll be great and then by the opening credits finishing i was passed out missed my missed the movie (laughs) Uh, damn Finally sat down and showed it to a friend, and it was the first time I watched it since completing it. So, I'll, uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'll see it a few more times in my lifetime. Hopefully, I know because uh, Kenneth and I we listen to like Kenneth listens to the, to the podcast, and I listen to it also. Even after editing it, I listen to it because Kenneth and I like to judge ourselves and see what we can do better. Sure, but it's like a, it's like a game tape for athletes. You gotta you, the more you pay attention and kind of it's the best way for self improvement. Yeah, but Jay, on the other hand, refuses to listen to anything that involves his own voice. Yep, I hate the sound of my own voice. I can't, can't my do wife, it. My wife's the same way with acting. Like she, you know, she was on a Law and Order episode a few months ago that everybody raves about. It. She won't. She hasn't watched it. And not that she won't. She just like it's not like a priority for her. Mm, 
Gotcha. I've always been curious about that, what it's like to be an actor and watching yourself as a diff- basically a different person on screen. And then for, for people that have been in the acting game for a really, really long time on top of that, I mean, it's like, you know, what, 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 I wonder what it's like to be somebody like John Travolta and then watch Saturday Night Fever and see yourself young and look at yourself in the mirror now or something like that. You know, I've always been curious well, wait, about that. To be fair, I guess I did watch the movie uh, without the sound when I did the audio director's commentary for the movie. So I did see it then as well. But then it's mostly just like, you know, I'm watching it thinking about how much money was wasted there, what got cut out there that cost took so much time and effort to make that isn't used, how miserable I was on this day. Oh, I had diarrhea that day. That's all I can remember watching it. You know? Those are the best Damn. commentaries, though. Right? No, I was very restrained in my commentaries. Very much, uh, we didn't have the disclaimer of the, the director's views are not that of the studio kind of thing. So I was... I was on my best behavior in the in the commentary and just tried to tried to spend it giving props to everybody that that helped out our low budget movie so much. Fair well, enough. Well, see, that's the thing. I I, I love it. You know, it, I love hearing. That's one thing I like about commentaries that are like that and things like that. And I, you can ask Jerry or Jay or anybody that I know that my thing is is a lot of times when I buy movies, I don't buy it for the movie. I buy it for the special features. If I've already seen the movie, I buy it strictly for the special features. And to hear someone talk completely real about whether their experience making a movie sucked or their experience making a movie was great or, you know, whatever pissed them off or anything like that. I, I love that kind of thing. I did that at every every Q&A at the film festivals that we went to. We um, are sort of U.S. premieres at the New York City Horror Film Festival. And what happened was. I had brought uh, DCP is the format for uh, like digital projectors and all, all movie theaters. So we had a, you know, a DCP ready, but you know, that was how you bring a Blu-ray backup. Um, so what ended up happening was there was miscommunication. There were only two, there were two theaters in this building, the Tribeca cinema and ours was scheduled to be in the one with the Blu-ray. So I don't oh, find here's the Blu-ray. And, you know, again, I didn't watch the movie. I was just mingling with some people in the bar because festivals are one of the best places to, meet your peers and, and talk to actors and people you might work with one day. Why watch my own movie if I can be networking? And, uh, you know, 10 minutes into the movie, uh, it's right around the bit where they put the girl in the corset and just turn the machine on and it cut out and stopped <laughs> working. So they come oh, on damn. and they're like, what happened? What happened? I was like, well, I got the backup Blu-ray right here in my pocket. They start the movie over, they put it in. It does the same thing at the same mark. So there's something with this Blu-ray player because I, you know, I quality controlled. You know, we made sure there was a a Blu-ray player in the van that some of us drove down from Canada. So like somebody had watched the whole thing through just to make sure there were no glitches. Like we knew that it worked. Um, and then they're like, "Well, we just can't show the movie then." And I was like, "No, no, 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 no. We didn't come all the way from Toronto to New York City to not screen the movie." So they said, "Well, the only thing we can do is use your DCP copy and put it in in the main, the bigger theater." When the when the other movie's done, I'm like you you want me to ask everyone to wait an hour and a half and then start the movie over for the third time, and fortunately for us, you know, I went in there and just sort of humbly begged everybody if they'd be willing to stay and, and I explained the technical difficulties and you know I didn't shit on the the festival for you know it's a technical glitch they happen it's the ghost in the machine, anyways people went out into the lobby. And started talking to other people saying, like, man, it got to this really intense part. Like, I really want to see what happens. And, and that ended up rallying more people to go see it when it did screen. 
Uh, so we had a larger audience than we would have had in the first place. But I have been like, buy, I'm like, I'll buy everyone a drink from that, that's you know going to stick around. Thank you for sticking around. Then people started buying me drinks. The festival just started handing me shots. So by the time it was over, I was just happy that it screened. Like you, you got to do a Q and A, and I was, was very, very drunk. So I had the all this to say, I had the most brutally honest, ask me anything about this film that you could possibly want to know. And apparently it was quite hilarious because I just, you know, held back on nothing. And some of my, uh, you know, cast members and even my producing partner were stood up in the front of the, there's some good photos of them from that just cringing as I'm telling every gory little detail. Nice. That's, that's, see, then that's the kind of stuff that I'm with Kenneth. I love. In fact, when I was watching uh, the special features on the scare house, uh, you had your whole cat. Okay. So for Jane Kenneth, who don't know this, um, they took the entire cast before the premiere and made them go through the actual haunted house that they filmed in. And it <laughs> not is not they, not they, me, me, me. me. <laughs> our, premiere was, our premiere was October fifth, and the haunted house that we filmed the movie in was open for business to the public. So we arranged, you know, I told all the cast, like, listen, you got a limo. It's going to pick you up at the hotel this time. You're going to go do a little bit of PR and press because the premiere was in the town we shot the movie in. And, you know, I, I it was shot in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, was sits on the border with Detroit, Michigan. You know, films generally aren't made there. There's there's an indie film every four years or something, maybe so. It's a very excitable city for, for things like this to happen. So it's like you're going to get in the limo, go do some media. You're going to have some caviar and wine and so they're all dolled up, ready to go to the premiere, and then the limo pulls up outside of the scare house, and uh, I sent a camera guy with them, and he broke it to them and said, well, like, listen, you got to go through the haunted house. You're going to be filmed with, like, night vision cameras to see how the cast of the scare house could handle the scare house. Uh, and if you don't go, you can't get to the premiere. So they they reluctantly all went one by one, mostly, or two by two, and we, we filmed it all to make a, a fun little prank video uh to, to help promote the film and, and there's if you ever want to see beautiful women dolled up swearing like truckers it's it's the place to be <laughs> nice awesome yeah it was it was great to watch i as soon as it ended i restarted it i was like ah, let's one more time i gotta watch this again jerry when you come down here make sure you bring that with you all right i can do that <laughs> or or i can just mail you a blu-ray i'd happily do that I'll that would be it. awesome. Not not right now while we're on the podcast, but you know, in a day. Or two. Yeah. <laughs> no, please yeah, be right be back. Amazing. Gotta go to the mailbox. When it stops being hot as balls in LA, and I venture outside. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, the the Blu-ray is actually going to go on sale for everyone soon, right? Yeah, sometime middle of this month, uh, it'll be on Amazon, and then I believe uh, you know some of the surviving video chains are picking it up and uh, you know, Walmart and all the retailers will have it as well. Very nice. I'm excited for that. Uh, because I, luckily enough, I got it for horror pack and, uh, I gotta say I was really worried about watching it at first because the last horror pack had a movie called night of something strange in it. Okay. And I watched it and I hated it. It was, <laughs> It was extru- It was it was a low budget film, which I didn't hold it back for that. But it was very low brow humor, which I'm fine with low brow humor. But this was just straight out gross out humor, and it just I, the whole time I'm just like, what the fuck am I watching? 
And then when I saw this one and I did uh, my unboxing of it, I was like, okay, this looks a little better. And then I did the kill the trailer for it and watched the trailer. And the trailer was fantastic. Did you cut the trailer together also? I did. I did. It looked amazing. And it has my favorite line from the movie in it. It's my secret backup plan in life that if I fail at filmmaking, I'll, I'll cut trailers for a living. Just trailers and music videos? I would love to cut trailers. Trailers are so much fun. I've cut trailers for a few other. I think Horror Pack had uh, Late Night Double Feature one month. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cut the trailer for that. I, w- I was uh, an editor that edited some segments on that film, and I, I cut the trailer for that when it was coming out on Blu-ray. Um, so it's kind of fun to it's it's fun to work on someone else's film sometimes in any capacity where you're not you know responsible for its outcome. Yeah, <laughs> I actually do something similar. I have a separate YouTube channel where I take uh, clips from movies and cut them together with a song I think fits the theme of the movie. And oh, so cool. I have fun doing that. Oh, like kind of like a montage set to whatever song. Right. Yep. You you. I can tell you from working with a lot of bands, bands love when they discover stuff like that sometimes, especially if they happen to be fans of of the movie as well. It's really it's a really surreal thing for them sometimes to see their music used in part of a tribute to something that they also love, but they never thought of in connection with it before. I wish we'd have had the technology back in the day when I was in a band to do the stuff that people do now. Yeah, I, uh, I I say that every day about filmmaking. Like, if I was born, if I was a kid today with this YouTube stuff, I'd be famous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's actually that funny enough. Uh, the you have a quote out there that where's this quote at? Uh, here it is. Wait, I'm quotable from where? From uh, IMDb. You have a personal quote on there that I did I, not. I did not write it myself. Hold on, Googling myself. Let me catch up. Yeah. Uh, The quote says, Growing up, filmmaking was always my imaginary friend. I could feel it, spend time with it, enjoy its company. I just had to convince the rest of the world it really existed. When I read that, I got really happy. When I was younger, I wouldn't just play with toys. I would make movies. Like, I would take my Dragon Ball Z toys and... And create an episode. I'd go outside and change scenery and and do all that kind of stuff. I, I had to go above and beyond. And you, you're, uh, I mean, you're speaking my language because my I ruined my mother's garden in the backyard many times over digging sarlacc pits. Like so it makes stop motion films with those Star Wars action figures. Yeah. Come on, Bubba Fett, jump in. Exactly, do it. <laughs> oh, we can still see the wire. We got to get thinner fishing line. Come yeah. on. But I would, and I would like take. I would like make like. Uh, mini explosions so like when they threw like an energy beam or something it would blow up and i and i you know light a mini fire and hope i didn't like start an actual fire and so when i read that quote i was like that is one of the best quotes i have ever heard that's so funny i i if i i'm 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 actually looking at that now i didn't realize there was all this stuff on imdb trivia i have trivia yes Um, i I was getting to that also I uh well that quote I believe there was a student documentary filmmaker that asked me years ago if they could like sort of follow me around and sort of follow the indie hustle of uh of filmmaking I was working on one of my projects and I had done a music video that I the music video was about girls that were kidnapped and we marketed the film just taking a cue right out of the Blair Witch marketing 
we put up fake missing posters all over the city that it was premiering and to announce the premiere party. And it caused a shitstorm of people just, you know, of course, not reading the fine print and, and thinking that there was a mass kidnapping happening and starting night patrols and, uh, you know, parent watch alerts and, you know, college campuses rallying together. And then there was a, a women's rights group that ended up protesting me uh, in the music video for, for violence against women. And it just all, all kind of blew completely out of control, which I just happily dove headfirst into and, and just would say the the stupidest things to on, in the news to this group, knowing it would only make them more angry and promote the event even more, which we sold out and then some. But long oh, story yeah. short, it was all around then that this this documentary student had asked if they could kind of follow along. Uh, and I think that quote comes from that. And if I remember correctly, the little short documentary was called My Imaginary Friend. That's 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 So I think I must have said that in an interview with them. And I wonder... Who saw that and how that ended up on IMDb? Because I don't think that's on YouTube or anything. The mm. internet knows all. It does it really does? And you and you do have to jump into controversies like that. My uh, the other podcast I do is about Married with Children, the show. And um, you mentioned that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that we can't wait till we get to the episode that really blew up Married with Children because of the controversy of the women women protesting them and trying to get the show pulled off Fox and all that. So it's hilarious to me that you got to do something like that also. Well, it's funny. I, I, it, was, it was the whole thing, but long story short, I ended up going they, – they organized like a march downtown in my home city. And I kind of had an insider in the group that told me, oh, we got about 30 people. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to get 60 people and I'm going to protest their protest. So we went down and, and just – I just shit disturbed anything that I possibly could, knowing that it was only going to get more media attention and make our event – you know, that, that, and this was like a band that nobody had heard of. So I'm like, we're going to end up on like MTV if we keep, if we keep it up, you know? Um, so I, I don't know if you guys are re- arrested development fans, but I brought a sign to the protest that, uh, you know, mimicked when George Michael goes to the book burning that he doesn't really want to be at with Anne. He has the sign that says iffy gray area. Uh, so I made, <laughs> I just carried that sign around all night. That is great. very cool. Um, and while we're on IMDb, Let's hit you with the trivia that's on here because I want to like this sounds like it's true, uh, and so I got to know. Gavin began his professional career in videography, sneaking into concerts in Detroit, Michigan, with a fake Canadian television press pass. One of the first bands to buy into his gig as a reporter was Third Eye Blind. Frontman Stephen Jenkins liked his work enough to bring him on further tour dates and hired Gavin to shoot additional material for the band as well as another project he was producing. Did you do this? Hundred percent true and accurate. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> wow. I, uh, yeah, I uh, I just wanted to meet bands like bands that I liked. I never really thought it would turn into a career, but uh, you know, the Third Eye Blind one. Like I just I just shot for them in Toronto last week, and I was just hanging out and watched the show in Detroit uh, a couple nights ago before I flew home. Like so, it, it's a honestly, it's like the the greatest thing i've ever fumbled my way into because i didn't that i would have never directed a music video or had an offer i would not have you know toured with bands the first time i ever came to la in 2004 was because uh steven third eye blind's front man uh was producing a record for if you remember vanessa carlton the thousand miles girl the piano girl yeah he was producing her record and he said, hey, you know, Universal wants to put out a DVD with the album. Do you want to come document the whole making of the album? 
So that was my first trip to Los Angeles ever. Um, you know, I got to go to San Francisco and Miami and New York and film all the stuff. The DVD came out with every, you know, millions of copies of that, that album all over the world. And, uh, and that got me another offer. And then I got an offer to work with Eminem in Detroit and shoot some behind the scenes. And all of that spent, spins out of, uh, you know, having snuck into that one concert many, many, many moons ago. So I, from that point on, I was, I was like, you know what, man, what's the risk, you know? The, the 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 biggest risk is somebody's probably going to kick me out. Maybe call the cops. But if I'm not doing anything too illegal or too pushy, it should work out. I you know I, I met my wife that way. It was at the Toronto Film Festival at a a party. I, I used to again same tactic, just show up and sneak my way into whatever parties I could, uh, and ended up meeting her there. So there's a you know a couple times in my life it's really it's really paid off for the best. You know, just pretending to be somewhere you're not supposed to be. The closest story I have to that was actually at E3 this year. Uh, there was one game that me and a buddy are really interested in, and it was only on display for the media at Bandai Namco's booth. And so the lady watching the the area that's cut off kind of turned, and we just, just walked in and just to play the game. And so that was pretty cool. So I understand awesome. how awesome that I had, um Are you a, a fan of the Far Cry games? Yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, Sarah, my wife, who's in Scarehouse, she's uh, she just completed her work on Far Cry Five that just got announced. That she's she's in it. Oh, nice! Is she doing motion capture voices both? All all of the above, yeah. The facial scans, the motion capture. She, it's all uh, one of Ubisoft's main offices is in Montreal and Toronto, so she she did hers in Toronto. That's badass. That is awesome. Fun. I'm a video game addict, and I'm not supposed to own video game systems anymore. But I'm gonna <laughs> justify buying one when uh, when the game comes out. Well, wow. we support you until you stop making uh, videos and movies, and then we're gonna take away well, your that's, video well, games. That's what's gonna happen. If you ever see a complete lull in my production life, you'd be like, "God damn, he got bat- I know he oh, got Battlefront two. He got Battlefront two. He hasn't come outside for months." So. Jay, Jay, it's like the the guy who uh, writes the Berserk manga. How Anytime a new idol game comes out, he just stops making the manga completely. Oh, that's funny. That's gonna happen. All right, so let's get into uh, the Scarehouse. So Scare- Scarehouse was uh, from 2014, and uh, it's it's a revenge flick, and I love revenge flicks. Uh, whether it's who doesn't, yeah, whether it's uh, Last House on the Left, I Spit on Your Grave, or Old Boy, I absolutely love revenge flicks. And this took uh, a topic that is, is very well known now, which is like joining a sorority or fraternity or any kind of initiation thing like that, and it goes too far, or the prank goes too far. And what happens when two people become the scapegoat and everyone else gets to walk away? And what happens when those two people come back out? That is your... The, the premise for this movie, um, and if you haven't watched the movie, watch it because I'm sure there's going to be some spoilers in here because we spoil everything. Um, so, with that said, I have to say, from the, the script to how the movie looked, uh, to the acting, everything was phenomenal. This, to me, looked like it 100% could have been a big budget movie that went to theaters. It I at no point I agree. felt like it was low budget at all. Or even it was a, way a, better than some of the mainstream stuff that's come out recently. 
Yes. I was like, someone pulled it, like, what they just did with 47 meters down. It came out, like, last year under a different name. Then they pulled it and re-put it out because of the shallows. Really? Yeah. Like Fucking I, Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, they, they need to do that with this because I think if you put this in theaters, I 100% think that the teenage audience would go see it and love it. Yeah, I agree, I'm, too. I really liked it, but, you know. If you want to call the complaint line at our distributors and let them know that, we'd, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. Anytime you make an indie film, the fact that anybody ever sees it is a, is a minor miracle. The fact that the film got finished is always a minor miracle for, for most independent films. Um, this, this film sort of came up in a very strange way. I had... Uh, I spent six years of my life developing and almost shooting a movie that never happened. Uh, it was called Four Shots, and I pitched it and sold it originally at the beginning of 2007. So you got to think about the timing. This is post Blair Witch and pre everything else with a camcorder. Uh, and it was Four Shots. The premise was what what would it be like if the shooter in a Columbine style shooting it left four cameras in students' lockers on senior prank day. And when they got to school and opened their locker, there was a note that said, very Joker-style cutout letter note that says, turn this camera on, film everything you see, you'll and, and you'll win a great prize. So lo and behold, they turn the cameras on thinking, oh, somebody's going to streak naked, somebody's going to set up fireworks. And it ends up being, you know, a, a school shooting massacre. And the prize is their life if they continue to film. So the movie was going to be shot... Uh, found footage style, but with all four cameras running at the same time. And you would see picture in picture, like all four cameras on the screen. Um, and you'd only hear the audio from one at a time. So the audio would cross fade from camera to camera, but you were always in a single unbroken take going to watch what it would be like from four different students' perspectives uh, on this day and how, why they were chosen, you know, how they all kind of relate together and, and, you know, sort of, you know, learning the dynamics of this particular high school and the bullying that occurred and how everything sort of came together. So it was actually four separate screenplays that all told the one movie. And every single time we got close to making this movie, a real life shooting incident would happen and it would get delayed or canceled. So it, it, uh. it ruined, ruined my life for many years. And uh, in 2012, we had full funding through a company called D Films in Toronto and the Canadian government has film grants. Everybody was on board. Uh, we had the producer, one of the producers of Capote and Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus and the Butterfly Effect sequels on board. We were fully cast. And that summer was the uh, Batman movie theater shooting that happened. Oh, Jesus. And Damn. Like, yeah, everybody went, you know, and it's always like, I mean, it sucks that it sucks way worse that people died in real life and this happened than boohoo, my movie getting canceled. But. We, we lost the support of the Canadian governments on that one. They, they got nervous and pulled their money out. So we found money out of Quebec and Montreal to, to finish it. We got it back on its feet. Uh, in December, we were just about to start rehearsals. We were going to shoot March 2013 when the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting happened. And everybody just said, yeah, little kids this time. This is, this is getting tough. Um, you know, because everybody was starting to realize, like, you know what, with GoPros and everything now, it's only a matter of time before people start filming their murders, you know. Um, it happened this summer with the, the Cleveland uh, yeah. in Cleveland on Facebook Live. 
which we had done a project for Blumhouse, which was a, the, the world's first live movie about a serial killer streaming his murders. Um, so everything, everything that you could possibly write, no matter how dark and twisted, seems to be happening in real life. But what the fallout was, you know, this company just said, Gavin, give us another script. So we love you. We want to make a movie with you. Give us something that's not so controversial that people can't back away from. I said, well, I have this idea. It's called The Scare House. It's about, it's about these people. They build a haunted house specifically for the, the purpose of getting revenge so that as they invite everybody down for sort of a private party, um, they don't realize that they're, they're walking into a maze where these two people have the upper hand and can kill them and get away, literally get away with murder by hanging their bodies in there. And nobody will, nobody will question that they're not just elaborate props. And, uh, and right away at that lunch, that was May 2013. They said, great, we love it. Can you shoot this year? Can it be in theaters by Halloween? And I said, well, I haven't written it yet. So I said, well, lunch is over. Go write it. (laughs) It was was the opposite problem of most films of chasing money for years and years, hoping that something gets made and then turning around and saying, okay, let's shoot it. So that August we were, uh, we were on set and and making the movie. So it it happened, uh, happened very quick. I got to say that the idea for the original movie is fantastic. I, and that does suck that it never got made because I would love to see that movie. Oh, God, well, me too. I'm in complete agreement. The real problem was we were going to market it via the Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity where you would believe that this really happened in a small town in Canada somewhere with this huge elaborate marketing plan. And that's what people were scared of. But they also knew that if we didn't do the elaborate marketing plan, then it might not get the hype and attention. So it was like a catch-22 in terms of We'd have to really ride the line and and eat a lot of a lot of hatred for for the movie. Yeah. But without that, would it would it be as popular? So it's not. There's actually a producer who's and it was all very secretive back then. We were going to shoot it and we had a whole fake title and we we're going to shoot a fake trailer for what people would think we were shooting and, um, you know. But then like a Paranormal Activity came out and then Blumhouse took you know. Uh, found footage to the next level in Cloverfield, and 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 everybody did it, and then everybody mimicked it, and then everybody got sick of found footage. Yeah, because so, there's a there's a movie that uses a similar idea where they send the cameras to these people, and then they all end up meeting up and like accidentally killing themselves. Um, it's called uh, Mockingjay. I want to say. Oh, I don't know. Um, it's by the I, the guy who directed uh, the Strangers. Oh, okay. I'll ch- I'll check that out. I mean, that sounds. In- I I love concepts like that. And I had a, uh, I have another. Well, it was kind of funny when I did the, when I came up with the idea for the live film. It was using Periscope, like streaming over an iPhone. I thought, well, if a serial killer, anybody has this technology in the palm of their hands. And when I pitched it to Blumhouse, and they they jumped on right away. I I kind of, you know, no, no pun intended with uh, Blumhouse, it purged my demons to like you know make make this found footage thing, this real time thing. Because that, that was only 20 minutes long, but we did it in real time. We shot it all live. So everybody watching thought that it was, was real, and the LAPD got called on us. Like It was, it was a very, very strange oh, night. I, but, uh, I watched you know, it, and it was fantastic, and I just have one question. Yep. Uh, those notifications you were getting on your phone that were not like the Periscope comments, but you were getting like Facebook notifications, were those actual like real notifications happening on your phone? And there no, was... That, was, that was because I was trying to uh, screen cap record the broadcast after, you know, because it stays on Periscope for 24 hours later. So that's that was only seen 
and the rebroadcast version that ended up on my website or YouTube or whatever. Okay, because I because I was watching it and I was just like, well, that's interesting. The the killer's getting actual Facebook uh, notifications. But then, yeah, but was... now I realize how dumb that is for me saying that because obviously Periscope would not show that. Yeah, it was. If uh, I was murdering people, I'd probably be getting Facebook notifications. Yeah, check. I mean, everybody still checks their Facebook, even if you're murdering people. Like, it's pretty addictive. Yeah, hold on. Can you uh, uh, die a little slower? I got. I got. Someone just great gave me a great comment. One moment, hold, I'll be with you. I'm trying to. I'm trying to Snapchat this. Take one more breath. <laughs> um. It's 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 sick, but it's not that far off, you know. I think, uh, but with uh, with four shots, I think you know there's a producer here that actually just you know read the script and really really loves it and said, "I'd like to get this made. I still think there's life in it." I said, "I hear that every six months from somebody. They read everybody who reads it loves it, but eventually they they realize the roadblock." So I said, "My deal with him was like, look, I'll I'll." I'll sign the rights to you that you can try to produce it. And I would love to direct this movie. This is my favorite script I've ever written. And I will be there to make the movie if you get the money and everything in place. But I will not meet with anybody, pitch it, talk about it, or get my hopes up for it ever again. It's just too painful at this point. And I want to go make, move on and make other movies. So should you, if you get the movie together, amazing. I'll be there in a heartbeat. But otherwise, it's, uh, it's off the table. I, yeah, well, I want to be the first one to know, or us three be the first one to know when uh, when you're actually green lit to do it because uh, that's a really rad idea. I can I can do that. I'll make a I'll make it. Hold on, Siri, remind <laughs> remind <laughs> kill the cast guys when we go into production on four shots. Uh, that's hilarious. No, I but I'm with Kenneth. It's the idea behind it is great. Oh, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it, and I can't wait to see. That was one of the things I really liked uh, about the short you did with Blumhouse was using new technology to make a movie. And um, did you play – you played the killer, right? No, no. No? The killer was um, uh, an actor named Neil Napier. He was on uh, Helix on the Sci-Fi Network for both seasons. He's one of the leads on Helix, Uh, and he was in – he was in X Men: Days of Future Past briefly. He's the ugliest version of Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, Mystique morphs into him, and he's a Secret Service agent that tries to assassinate Peter Dinklage's character. Oh yeah, right, right. He's he's, he's done quite a bit of. He's been in a couple. He was in a music video for me. Uh, Neil Napier has become a really good friend of ours. But Sarah was on Helix with him, and uh, I just knew. You know, when we're working on the project, I said, okay, I need somebody who can do theater because they, they've got to be able to do it live. And I need somebody who, and Neil's a photographer, just, you know, amateur photographer, but a very good photographer. So somebody who can work a camera because he had to operate the camera the whole time. Somebody that I can just utterly trust not to screw up this live movie, you know, and, and also has a knack for playing bad guys. And uh, Neil was just perfect for it. Yeah. See, that's why I thought it was you because I was like, who is he going to get to play it like this? Because it's live. You can't mess up. You have to go. And if I what... tried to act in something, that would be the thing that messes it up the minute I open my mouth on screen. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. All right. All right. Let's get back into the scare house. So we, we have an idea of how it all came about. Uh, how long did it take you to write the script since you pretty much got told stop eating, go write? Uh, I had the first draft done in two weeks. Uh, my wife, Sarah, 
basically locked me in my office in our apartment in Toronto and just would bring me food like a prison cell, you know, every couple, every, you know, every, every mealtime. And we would, we would go jogging at night every night and I would just bounce ideas off of her while I was jogging. That was like my yard, my yard work, my yard duty or yard time. And then, uh, and then back to jail to keep writing. So I had a first draft done in two weeks. We, uh, ran it by, our distributor, they they were loving it. So I just from that point, just once we had that first draft, we kind of knew the dynamics of everything we needed. Started bringing crew and everything on board. Just kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting up until we were uh, ready to shoot. Very nice. No. Okay, go ahead, Kenneth. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Um, when you were writing the script, did you have your wife in, in intended in your mind for the role that she that she was in in the movie? No, I mean, we don't. We don't have. Uh, you know, we don't. I, there's no nepotism in it. She, uh, she was actually interested in playing the character of uh, Lisa, the one who's you know like more the badass that ends up almost saving the day. Right. Um, she, she likes doing a lot of action stunt stuff. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Universal Studios, the theme park out here in LA, but they have a Waterworld stunt show. Um, based on the Kevin Costner movie and, and Sarah's the lead in that and she does stunt acting on other films and so she was kind of really interested in that role and it was a smaller role and, and you know because w- what also happened with Scarehouse was uh, Universal Studios in the US actually came on board before we even shot the film to do the US release which was <coughs> botched um, but they you know they so everybody had uh, casting approval and because we worked with the Canadian government some of their grants they have a say and and who who gets to be in the film and uh, so she auditioned the same as everybody else but they kind of came back to us and said you know we don't really think she fits this part and I said okay no problem she you know she understands and uh, they said no 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 we think she'd make a great Corey she should play one of the two leads in the film and we went okay well she's not gonna she's not gonna be uh, upset about that news so no, definitely didn't have her in mind. I've I've always tried to do that, like just write the movie and then figure out casting later. Oh, okay. Because I I mean the reason why I was asking is because you know that's a that's a really pivotal uh, role in this. You know because I think the uh, and, and I'm sorry I have a really hard time remembering character names. Uh, Corey but, Peters. Uh, okay, Corey Peters, and then the other girl that was her partner, Elena Foster. Uh, Elena. Yeah. 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 Those two. I, I mean they're they're obviously very pivotal roles and they, they bounced off of each other. Great. And that's the reason why I was wondering, you know, like, well, they were actually that, that, uh, they went to theater school together and were roommates for a little while in Toronto. That was actually what I was just about to ask if they had a prior relationship. Yeah. They're actually like best, best friends in real life. Yeah. Nice. And I gotta say, they, Kenneth has a point. They bounced off each other. Great. Cause throughout the movie, there's multiple times where like the, the first time you get it is where, Elena is obviously like, we're about to go through with this and starts like second guessing it. And then uh, Corey just goes, nope, we're doing this. And then later on in the movie, there is another uh, thing of that happening where Elena's kind of like, look, we're done. And then Corey's like, nope, and here's why. And gives a, a another push to keep this going. And that was fantastic. That was one of the things that I like... I love this movie because of you find out the backstory and the mystery as you go on. And sometimes when that happens, I always feel like, oh, my God, just tell me what is going on. (laughs) So I know. But this time I have to say 
every, I, I figured it out early on, you know, what had happened. I just didn't know how it happens. And that kind of made me really get invested. Cause well, we- I kind of wanted to do, you know, it, it, and it, it all really is set up for the, for the twist at the end that Corey can't have Elena quit on her because she's planning on framing her and blaming her for the whole thing, right? So she's got to constantly find ways to keep Elena in the game. Because again, I just, I like the, the big thing I liked was the idea of, you know, because even, even though they, you know, they were the scapegoats of this thing, they went to jail, the other girls got off with, with no sentence at all. You know, they still, they still are responsible for drugging somebody and killing him. And there were videotapes to prove it all and photos, you know? Um, so, but I like the idea of people festering in a jail cell, especially if they were in the same prison and saying, you know, it, it's like sort of the, you know, everybody at some point in their life said, oh man, I'd like to kill that person. But imagine you're sitting in a jail cell day in and day out thinking, if I was going to kill that person, this is how I would do it. And, and you know, so it's just sort of like a, a really twisted fantasy that got out of hand. And there's also a lot of like, you know, theory versus practical you could you could plan all you want, but until you have to go through with it and jab that knife into somebody and end their life, you know, they're obviously you're going to have sort of mixed emotions. And we kind of I kind of wanted to show that that like, you know, they they are still humans, and and for Elena, you know, this is not not really what she signed up for, and is only kind of a reluctant partner in the beginning. Yeah, and that's actually in one of my uh, my second favorite line in the movie, which will be the one that goes over the Exorcist theme is. Uh, well, that was unscripted. Well, I told you it was it was a theory. Like I <laughs> that, loved that line, and I was like, "Is that is that when Elena jams the breast implant down her mouth and kills her preemptively?" Yes, it was. And I when I was watching it the second time, and I was watching it to like uh, take my notes on characters and also pick my quote for the front. As soon as that line happened, because before that, I was going to do the line of. Uh, sluts and liars they are but when that quote happened I was like nope that's the quote right there because that is by far that has killed the cast completely unscripted and we just have a theory of how we do it and we just and that's what we do and I was like that's actually that's actually one of my favorite parts I've got I've got two two of my best sequences that I have and one of them is you know the whole the whole thing when the girl gets killed with the breast implants. I mean, that's just, <laughs> to me, that was, it was, it, it, it was one of those that's just, it was disturbing, but hilarious at the same time. I loved it. And then uh, my other one is, uh, who came up with the idea? And, and I mean, if it was you, you know, that that's awesome. The, the powdered acid <laughs> from the pillow fight. I, man, when that, when that happened, I was just like, Oh my God! It's sorority girls having a pillow fight and they're killing each other with acid. That is amazing. Those uh, the the corset squeeze and the powdered acid, the pillow fight with acid are my wife's genius. When I was writing the movie, you know, I've I've seen every horror movie under the sun. So of course, as every horror fan knows, the kills have to be more elaborate. Everything's been done before. What? So we were just trying to desperately think on like. How can we make them original, but how can we also make them tie to the character dynamics of each one of these girls? What is it about that they hate about themselves inside that these girls can exploit and play on and, and you know, bring to the surface is, uh, is uh, an understatement, I guess, the breast exam one or the breast uh, implants. But 
Sarah, to her twisted little credit, said, you know, what about, you know, removing her breast implants? It's like, fuck, that's harsh. And then, uh, you know, (laughs) jamming down her throat became my idea of like, oh, well, if they're going to take them out, they should come into play. Um, And then the, so that in the pillow fight too, she just said, you know, like all this, every male fantasy of what happens in a, in a slumber party or a sorority house is a bunch of pillow fights. So let's, uh, you know, just the idea that those two characters are always bickering with each other uh, over anything. I said, okay, well now they can basically fight to the death. It's that, superb. <laughs> the, pow- the powdered acid is uh, actually just powdered sugar, icing sugar. So whenever we were filming that, Delicious. in between in between takes, you'd walk in and breathe in, and it's like a, a small dose of cocaine for your lungs. You would just instantly be awake. So before in the morning, you're like dragging your ass. You'd like breathe in like this powdered sugar. It's like I'm awake. Let's go. Let's keep filming. I can just I can awesome. just see you all on. On stage, is Ivana quit snorting the pillow. Quit it. <laughs> Cut it out. We can't put that in the documentary. Yeah, uh, yeah no, that was great. Uh, a lot of the deaths were really good. In fact, there's one um, would-be death we never get to see, which is the dildo one. Which, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I knew when she was doing that, I was like, okay, that's not going to happen. Like, I just Why? knew it wasn't going to happen, but... What, what my my favorite I just have to tell you my favorite favorite thing that's ever come out of my mother's mouth in, in the entire history of knowing my mom my entire life was at our world premiere I was sat in the lobby having a drink with an old friend from elementary school who can't watch horror movies but came out to support anyways and you know you know you know in between movies and one of these giant megaplexes like it's just it's very quiet and still in there the employees are like wiping down the counters or like making more popcorn and a theater door bursts open and my mom comes out she looks over at me she goes gavin i don't care what they do with that dildo but i'm not fucking watching it you know (laughs) (laughs) oh my god through this like you know huge ceiling like room and i just kill myself laughing the people behind the counter must have been wondering what the hell is going on and it's like mom that's going on your on your head your headstone that's too good and then i was just like it's okay it's a red herring you can go back in it's safe you know oh that's <laughs> that's great and i love red herrings that's a shout out to neil from nfw podcast because he always calls me the red herring um that's nice. hilarious mothers are great my mom one day asked me she goes hey Go grab the most fucked up horror movie you have, and I was like, "Well, oh, we're not. Oh I'm not going to sit here and watch a Serbian film with you, uh, but we can no, watch Cannibal Family Fun." Yeah, exactly. I was like, uh, "I was like, I'll tell you what. I'll put. I grabbed Cannibal Holocaust. I was like, that's probably the the next runner up between besides like a Serbian film or the August Underground trilogy." And I watched that with her, and when it got to the scene where the guy. Uh, rapes the woman with the rock she just looks over at me and is like what are they going to do with that rock and I'm like oh you know rock paper scissors uh, <laughs> well my mom my mom also brought you know she was very kind of advice she's very proud brought a lot of her friends and her former my mom worked as a as a social worker for years uh in child adoptions and uh her her supervisor uh, hates the c word cunt you know and in the movie we have the uh the infamous cunt montage in the yes. uh, in the video footage 
And she said she was just like shrinking in her seat, like going like, you've got to warn me about this stuff. I was like, well, there's no way for me to know that that's your, your old boss's least favorite saying. And, you know, just know you just send out an email warning to your friends from now on. If my son made it, it will probably offend everybody I'm inviting. So Yeah, that's under my character description. I write uh, so that I have all the names in front of me and I remember who they are. Uh, for Shelby, my note says, redhead says cunt a lot. <laughs> that that was my my note for her. Well, to her to her credit, uh, Tegan Vince, the actress who played Shelby, uh, it was her idea to improv and sing the final countdown to Europe's the final countdown in the uh, in the kitchen and the party scene, which you know caps off the uh, the montage. Yeah, I wow. If I ever need someone to say cunt professionally, I'm that's who I'm contacting. Well, it was funny the amount of, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a much longer cut of that montage because we, we had done so many variations of sayings and phrases and stuff. Cuntosaurus is my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> no, we need just, just the unrated director's cut. Yeah, no, I'm done with this film. That's not happening. He's like, I am not <laughs> editing this fucking thing again. I am. I'll do it. Give me all the raw footage. Just because I started with music videos does not mean I'm David Lynch. This is not happening. Perfect. Um, yeah. So, uh, what, what, uh, I got. I got to just describe the plot. That's as far as we've gotten. Yeah, I know. But there's so much <laughs> interesting background shit to this movie that I'm like, guys, go watch the movie. And I just want to know all the background shit. Like, like the the whole uh, uh, Jacqueline character. That mm-hmm. character was fascinating. From not seeing anything like because when you're looking at all the the recorded footage when they're doing their flashbacks you really don't know anything about her except for them you know kind of slightly going into her being of faith but that's it and and you you and it obviously looks like yeah she's of faith with air quotes then you get towards yes. the end of the movie where you get to see her talking on camera and that makes you doing her interviews and you're like obviously okay yeah she's She's doing her image. But then you get her when she's actually in the bathtub and starts going through her her Christian faith. And I was I was raised, my grandfather, uh, rest in peace, was a Baptist preacher. And he was raising me in that route also. It didn't work very well. I ended up becoming an atheist. But, you know, he tried. So congrats. Um, but... Uh, he would, when he was, uh, getting closer to dying, he was starting to go see now, he would say shit to me that I was having flashback when she was talking. It reminded me of him so much that I was like, this is fucking on point with crazy Christian. Like if she would have like started talking about the roads of heaven are paved with gold. Don't you want to go there? I would have probably flipped out. (laughs) I, uh, I have. To put it lightly, I have some experience with uh, a girl that used to be in my life that that turned to Christianity partway through our relationship. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm, uh, I'm I'm very jaded by religion, and a lot of her character was based on uh, on this this woman in my life. Um, and also, I I'm uh, actually I've actually directed a few hit Christian music videos, which is hilarious given this movie. Um, <laughs> But I just, you know, I, I do like the hypocrisy of stuff. And I, I, I largely like the just the idea that 
you know, Corey thought she was going to torture this poor girl by like locking her up in the hothouse for days and not telling Elena she was even in there. But, it, you know, like I think the, the line in the movie says, like, I think your plan may have backfired or isn't what you intended because she's sort of like gone off the deep end into into her sort of religious insight versus, you know, breaking her. Oh, yeah. The line is, um, I don't think uh, solitary confinement had the effect you wanted it to have. Yeah, I like the uh, you can't break my spirit. You know, on the contrary, I'd count on it. Oh, yeah, that line was so good. I was just like, all right, gloves have been thrown. Let's fight. I have a I have a web feature that I'm going to I'm going to put out at some point because I have moments. I have all the girls auditions still on tape and there there are like definitive moments for each girl that you can see in the audition exactly why we chose them for each of the characters. And Catherine's is in, in one of those uh Christian rants, uh, it's spot on to exactly how the movies perform. Uh, Catherine Burrell, who played the character, she, you know, she, she's, she was great in things that we'd seen her in before. Canadian actress lives in Toronto, but she, she's having a career spike like, like no other right now. She's on the Sci-Fi Network show, uh, Winona Earp, is one of the fan favorite characters. That's in season two right now. And then she's on a Canadian show called Working Mom. So she's, she's killing it. Very nice. Very um, cool. And uh, the character of Lisa really threw me off because she's when you go through the uh, the the uh, filming from all the showing that party night, you learn nothing about Lisa at all. Like there's nothing there until she shows up, and when they try to get her, she all of a sudden is a badass. And well, like, well, in the in the in the flashbacks in the nightclub, you she do does see her punch up, that one dude, the guy with knees, yeah, in, in half a second, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like, I didn't even catch that until my second time around with the film. Okay, um, which I will say, guys, this is a film you need to watch twice because you can catch so many like smaller details that when you're watching, go, oh, I see how that you know affects the movie later on. So this is definitely <laughs> a movie that has rewatchability. Um, and- I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm watching the scene where uh, where Jacqueline's in the bathtub, and she's got the the uh, she's got the uh, hair dryer hair up. Dryer, and she's, yeah. yeah, and she's got the hair dryer up, and she's going off on one of her little you know religious tangents or whatever. And, and girls like easy there, red state. I, dude, the first time I, the first time I watched it, I was laughing so hard at that line. Oh, it was great. That's, that's that's my little tribute to being a big Kevin Smith fan. Kevin, uh, I had uh, I had met Kevin face to face once, and he he um, was really supportive of my school shooting movie. And actually, um, I can't divulge who, but tried to put in a massively good word for somebody way way bigger in this industry than, than I ever thought I'd have a chance to connect with to try to help me get that movie made. So, and Red State, I I, I that's. That's my favorite Kevin Smith movie. I mean, Clerks will always have a special place in my heart, but I think he kicked that that movie's ass. It's so good, and I just and and if there's a movie about crazy religion out there, I was going to reference it was going to be that one. Right, and I was actually uh, Red State. I was actually pleasantly surprised. The only thing that sucks, and it and and it was better for me when I watched the special features on the film, is the only thing that sucks is at the end of it. I was thinking that it was going to be, you know, this apocalyptic, you know, craziness and whatever else. And and I was and I was disappointed when it didn't happen, but at the same time it was still a really good ending. But 
I remember watching the special features and Kevin Smith in t- originally intending on the apocalyptic stuff when they heard the horns for it to just go in this fire and brimstone shit. And it, you know, he just didn't have enough money to do it. But, <laughs> but the point is, is that red state was it, to me, it was like one of the pinnacle moments of his career to go from doing all the comedic stuff that he had done before with, you know, the view universe yeah. and all that, you know, to go from that to, a movie is serious and have such a, you know, underlining, you know, story to it and whatever else and, and satirical for, you know, crazy cult type people. I mean, it was just, it was, it was insane. I loved it. Yeah. I, I love dropping references to like my favorite movies or friends movies or things. A lot of last names for characters in my movies are a reference to, uh, to friends that were just trying to pay, pay a little credit to that helped my film career at some point in time or other, indie film there's actually I, I mentioned earlier there was the in horror pack months ago was late night double feature and that film there's a reference in the ticker tape on one of the news stories in the scare house that references the massacre of the tv station in late night double feature um in the in the ticker tape so there's, there's sort of a nod to that film that that these two things exist in the same universe they shared a lot of the same crew and and people from Toronto. So I thought that'd be a fun little Easter egg if anybody ever catches it. Yeah. And, uh, there was, uh, on IMDB, I saw a thing that said, uh, the two guys that find Shelby tied up inside the sorority display room, don't say their name is the camera, but the actor, Alex actually asked that they be named Billy and Stu. Now, did he ask you, who did he ask to, to, for that? Uh, so he asked Sarah and I, Alex, uh, Alex is a, is an actor from Montreal in Toronto now huge horror movie buff like he was on Degrassi at the time and a few other things and like way way above being in the scare house realistically speaking and and he begged to be in the movie he's like we want to be in a horror movie so bad we'll play any part so I actually wrote that part into the script specifically so that they could be in the uh in the movie and then he's like oh the screen's my favorite movie like we should be called Billy and Stu I'm like done it's it's an IMDB change it's easy you know (laughs) yeah nice and I, I and so speaking of like all the references, I was like, well, I've got to, I got to ask him because I want to know, did he ask you? Who did he ask? I'm always interested in things like that. Um, now you said that the the movie actually had some tough times while filming. Um, oh yes. What can you give us a few fun stories? Um, geez, I'm just trying to think where to start. We the building we filmed in is an old, um, it's called a Knights of Columbus Hall in Canada. It's sort of like a, like a, it's not a public space, but like it, it used to have a bingo hall and a swimming pool, almost like a rec center or a, y, a uh, YMCA. And the building, like other than it housing this, my friend's haunted house for a couple of years in it, uh, whose name is Sean Lippert. And we only, the movie has the laziest title ever because his place is called Scarehouse Windsor. So I was just, we just referred to it as the scare house until we came up with a better title. Um, and the building had a leak in it. And the landlord uh, promised, oh, yeah, I'll fix it, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. And that was the room where the bathtub was. And it rained so hard. We shot in August and September. And it rains a lot that in the fall in, uh, you know, in the middle, middle of the US, U.S. and Canada there. So we got rained out of our set for two days because he didn't fix the leak that he promised. 
And, you know, when you're working on an indie budget and an indie schedule, every small disaster like that is a major disaster. Big films just go, oh, whatever, it's another 200 grand. Who cares? Um, but our dollar was stretched to every dollar. We had uh, we had to repl- the girl playing Lisa was brought in super last minute, like the night the night before. I called her in Montreal and said, "Hey, an actress is dropping out. Do you want this part? Yes, great. You're on a train from Montreal at 8 a.m. tomorrow. It's a 12 hour train ride. See you there." So she walked off the train, got makeup, and went on set. Like she didn't even. She, she has a very funny story about reading the script for the first time on the train down and getting to like the dildo part where the girls are prepping the dildo and like <laughs> calling her agent saying like, I don't know if I want to do this movie anymore. What can I do? Uh, you know, until she kept reading and realized that it doesn't come into effect, you know, um, we had there was uh, again, same landlord was supposed to call the city and find out if they're right. We were filming days originally, but there was jackhammering right into the foundation of that building from the building next door. So we couldn't record any audio. So we had to switch to an overnight shoot. Um, it was just, it's just every day there was another, another major thing that my favorite is the, uh, it's similar to like what they say on jaws that all they ever heard over the radio was the shark's not working. The shark's not working. We had, uh, <laughs> The breasts are still not working. The breasts aren't <laughs> working. We had hired a makeup artist who uh, who will remain nameless. Lovely human being, super talented makeup artist. Our original plan for the breast removal was to create uh, fake fake breasts that w- w- would be made out of a mold and then apply to the actress because she had a, a contract that had no nudity, uh, which we agreed to in advance, so everything's fine there. Uh, we we're going to make these fake boobs that could be out the whole time. And then we could actually cut into and pull the the breast implants from that would fit over her actual breasts. The day comes and like, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have to Facebook you a picture of them after, afterwards. Cause they, they sort of look like if a third grade student made paper mache breasts, they were lumpy <laughs> and uneven and not even the right color. And like, and they're like, well, get an airbrush artist and, and we can clean this up and fix it. So one of my best friends, Giselle, is an airbrush makeup artist. I called her in last minute and said, just please come rescue me. And, you know, we're burning every – our total budget was 200000 Canadian to make the movie. So about 160000 140000 U.S. So we were burning through $10,000 a day. So we're at half a day of not shooting. So it's $5,000 wasted. The breasts still aren't working. We can't shoot anything. And now we're in getting into hour eight and nine and the airbrushing isn't doing anything. It's making it worse. So we have to start planning a solution. And our, our regular makeup art, he had been hired especially to do just the breast props, but our regular makeup artists, uh, that did everything else, all of the, the torture squeeze and the, the, the rib being cut out and the pillow fight, they were secretly in the background trying to come up with a solution, but didn't want to give any false hope. And they came to us and said, what if we do this? What if we put this flap of this gelatin over and, and do this to make the breast? Da, da, da. I think it, it won't you won't be able to show as much, but ultimately it'll probably end up being better because you can't, you know, leave it to everybody's imagination. So in like the 11th hour, they saved the day. And my producing partner, Mike Carrier, uh, happily ran around to strip clubs and bars talking to shooter girls for a girl that would sh- that would show their breasts for a shot. So it's a, so we had to find a boob double 
and everything like all, all in one day while wasting tons of money, but still got it done. And what you see in the movie is the solution that they came up with. But it was a, a terrible, stressful day of trying to uh, to get everything to happen. So every day there was just endless bullshit like that. The old building, the power kept going out. Uh, oh, again, the landlord, too, had promised uh, there'd be working toilets and running water. And there wasn't. So a day before the movie, rather than, you know, prepping and planning and finishing shot lists, uh, I was in there with my producing partner and his and his brother um, trying to we actually ran new plumbing into the building so that we could have a working toilet and everything like just all the things that shouldn't be required to make an indie film that should be the most basics uh, all because of one shifty landlord who just liked to talk out his ass and, and promise things that he had no intention of actually doing. That is interesting. Actually, uh, one of the questions. Um... So I'm going to give you one of the questions that we got from the Horror Pack Facebook group. Uh, this is Dave, I'm going to ruin his last name, but David Benitez. This is he said, "It'd be cool to know the budget of the film and how long it took to shoot, and give him my thanks for writing great female dialogue. I feel like some guys write pretty crappy, cheesy dialogue for female characters, but this movie, uh, dialogue is very witty, funny, and there's some great tension in the scene. So kudos to you, sir." And I just want to add on that I actually made uh, my fiance. I didn't really make her. She watch- she watches horror movies with me all the time, but I made her watch it with me because I wanted to know what her perspective on the female dialogue was. So after the movie, I was like, "Do you feel like this is how females talk to each other? Do you feel this is real?" And she was like, "Yeah, it's a little exaggerated, but yes, this is very on par with how chicks tend to talk to each other." So I have to agree with David on that. Fantastic job with the female dialogue. Did did Sarah actually like come in and go? We don't say that shit. Come on. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I always try to have people read the dialogue or, or do out, out loud reads to make sure that it sounds correct. I you know I, I try to. I always like going for more realistic dialogue. The um, the thing that I have a uh, we have a really good friend. One of, another one of Sarah's best friends in Montreal, Rochelle Hamilton. She's a film editor. And she just she talks like a character out of Veronica Mars or something just every day in her life. She's just the funniest, funniest female that I know. And I I had asked her, I said, will you read it? And if you just come up with any funnier lines than I have there, a better way to say things. So there's there's at least three or four gems of hers that are in there. The I think it's when Lisa first kicks their ass and um you know, Elena says she's getting away and Sarah's getting up off the floor. Like Corey's getting up off the floor and says, I'm going to eat that bitch for breakfast. Like that's one of her lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite line in the whole movie, which doesn't get a laugh. And I think people don't understand it or I don't know. It just doesn't work. But it's my favorite line. It makes me laugh is uh, when Emily not. Uh, yeah. Emily's being really slutty in the kitchen scene when they're whatever, like shaking her boobs around or something, the, the pre-party. And uh, I forget which character says this here. It says, oh, no, sorry. I'm confusing characters. Yeah, as I was going to say, Emily's uh, the, the really skinny chick. Yes. Yeah. No. OK, then I'm correct. It's Emily. And she says something really stupid. And, uh, you know, about being a bad girl, and she's obviously uptight and a virgin. And, and she says, like, Emily, I bet you fuck like an accountant. Yeah, like incredibly boring, and and that that was Rochelle's one of Rochelle's lines. So, so she sort of like helps script doctor some of the dialogue because she just has this this witty uh, sensibility. Um, 
my but yeah I, I mean that that's that's nice that somebody pointed that out and that he he caught that so yeah our budget was two hundred thousand canadian dollars yeah, I, was and, say, uh, um, I guess the budget on uh where did i have to find the, this budget wikipedia has it as 273 but I'm, it's 273 on paper but um the way some canadian films work especially in canada with tax credits and things is you can do um uh what's the word deferrals where you know a, a camera guy will say i'm working for x number of dollars cash a week but i'm deferring a couple hundred dollars a week and that's money that i'll get later when the film makes profit but by doing that on paper, your overall budget is larger and you actually qualify for more of a tax credit. So you have more money ultimately to make the movie. So yeah, it was it was $200,000 cash that we actually spent, but on paper is 273000 with the deferrals included. Gotcha. And also on Wikipedia, it said you shot for uh, 22 days. Is that true? Yeah, it was 21 days. And then uh, the day with all the flashbacks with the camcorder stuff was shot roughly four or five months later as an additional day okay gotcha so david i hope that answers your questions and uh it should I, in depth yeah i agree <laughs> um so i'm gonna go ahead and hit the other question that was asked this is by eric i literally could not figure out how to pronounce his last name so i just left it off but it's eric from the horror pack group he would like to know how you came up with a plot and gruesome torture scenes and to explain the twist at the end Okay, so how I came up with the plot, uh, I mentioned him a bit earlier, my my very good friend, Sean Lippert, just spent a couple of weeks sleeping on his couch in my hometown in Windsor. Sean uh, is, used to own bars and nightclubs in Windsor, and there was a thing where they changed the passport law, where to travel to Canada from the U.S., you had to have a passport, and a lot of his business relied on 19 and 20 year old American kids from Michigan and Ohio coming over and drinking their brains out uh, every Friday and Saturday. And that sort of all dried up because of the passport law for a while. Um, so he kind of got out of the bar business, but they still had one of their bar buildings and the lease wasn't up yet. So they said, well, what if we try like building a haunted house? Let's, let's do that. So my first time going through a Halloween fun house and seeing it with the lights on, was was there where I went in one day when he was building it and we're just always interested in each other's projects so stop by set or stop by the build and I'm watching him I'm like wow so there's like 30 or 40 people that work in here scaring the people it's like nah you could do it with like two or three people like the guy in the hockey mask scares you here then he goes through a trap door and puts on the pig mask and pulls out the fake chainsaw and then they go over here and and pull a lever which you know moves the the broom that sweeps at your ankles or whatever it is and I was like wow that's kind of interesting and then that's when I, I said out loud, you could probably murder people in here and get away with it because you would have the upper hand. You would know because he talked about how sometimes, you know, some drunk patron will be walking through and and punch one of their employees. Well, that happens. Well, then they have things where they've sort of built an endless loop. If they change a wall, um, the wall will shift and then that customer will be stuck in an endless loop for 20 minutes or until they decide to, like, move the wall back and they can find their way out. And leave people basically going crazier in tears. And I was just like, and that's that's where it where it came from. I was like, you know, somebody could make a movie about this. Wait, I could make a movie about this. So the idea had been rattling around in my brain for four or five, maybe six years, uh, before that lunchtime pitch came up where they said, What other movie ideas do you have? I said, No, I have this idea called this uh, it's about a scare house. 
Um, so that's how we came up with it. And the twist at the end, I'm assuming he's talking about the moment where, you know, you see it right in the opening of the movie. Corey and Elena are finishing final touches on the haunted house. and They hang two nooses and it's not really ever referenced again until the very end. They've killed all the girls. They sort of got their revenge plan done. And then, you know, they're, they they get dressed into these dresses, which are the same dresses they had on the night of the uh, the incident in question uh, from the, their sorority hazing. And they and they hang themselves. And you think, oh, fuck. So they always plan on, on killing themselves at the end of this and making themselves part of the attraction to com- sort of complete the uh, the room. And then, of course, it cuts back from the flashback and Sarah's rope was tied you know, incorrectly, on purpose, falls to the ground, picks up the knife, puts it in Elena's hand, makes Elena stab her so she can run out of the haunted house screaming, help, help me. You know, ultimately being the idea is that she was going to claim that she was one of Elena's intended victims. uh, And it was all Elena's doing and and her planning and plotting and walk away scot-free. Um but, you know, there was no other way to get away with murdering the other six girls uh, and not go back to jail, which she refuses to do. So it was always her sort of double cross at the end to to get away with murder. I, and it worked. Man. I I love the ending. I one, I love when uh, any kind of media, whether it's books, movies, anything, does not have a happy ending. I, I like. Me too. I love that depressing ending. Um, in fact, my favorite uh, love movie, so to speak, is one Kenneth showed me called London, which okay. is ha- has a very like depressing ending. And so I remember the first time I watched The Scare House. As soon as it was over, I was like, "Holy fuck! That is one of the best endings I have ever seen." I did not see it coming like i completely forgot about the nooses because i think when i first saw it i was like you know it's just part of this the haunted house completely forgot about it having having it happen i was just like holy shit and then to to basically pull a scream and have a fake stab wound turn into a real stab wound so they can set up someone else as the you know person who did it just fantastic I, i at the end of this movie i was like that is one of the best endings ever. Um, so many movies, you have all this buildup, all this buildup for an ending that's either predictable or just does not live up to what the movie is built. And this one, I think, perfectly leads up to it. I think if I don't think anyone is calling that betrayal. Not a single person is going to call that betrayal at the end. You mentioned Scream, and all I can think of is like, I'm feeling woozy, man. <laughs> that's awesome you hit me with a, a lot of blood phone. here you hit me with the fucking phone you know that that was improv right that was not supposed to happen that's really? like one of the greatest lines in the movie yeah. it's improv he just yeah. went with it he threw the phone but he wasn't supposed to hit him with it it was supposed to land next to him so he just like he improved it and they left it in the movie you hit me with a phone dick um there's well part of what i think makes that sort of the great escape there at the end work so well is uh our composer Adrian Ellis, his score. I don't know if you if you saw the bonus feature, the creating the score, um, but it's on it's on the Blu-ray. Adrian's a, a mad genius with with music, and he ended up scoring like getting us a free string section from an orchestra for that end piece, 
um, through. It explains it all on the Blu-ray, but like it's it's sort of amazing that on a low-budget film he was able to get an actual string orchestra to perform on it, and that it's it's used in that sort of end piece. Yeah, it was fantastic. The score was really good. And I'm actually not someone who notices score a lot, um, unless it's really, uh, really it's bad. 10 to 3. It's what? 10 to 3, the score. I have no idea what that means. I was just making a pun, a very bad pun. You said you don't notice the score, like 10 to 3, like a score of a, a sporting event. Oh, uh, that was fucking terrible. <laughs> You're off the fucking show. <laughs> All Jesus. right, I'm done. Hi, I'm Kevin Booth. I'm the new co-host of The Kill Test. <laughs> we have finally upgraded uh, our West Coast uh, supply line, uh, but no. I represent like... all. I represent all of Canada, and I would like to say that we apologize for Brian Adams one more time. <laughs> <laughs> for a second there, I thought he was going to say I represent the Lollipop Guild. <laughs> <laughs> just as good. Just as good. Um, but I don't notice a score really unless it's so bad it takes me out of it. Um, like we did a review of Last House on the Left, and that score is one is one that will really take you out of the movie. Um, and it wasn't for the fact that I love that movie; I'd probably fucking hate that movie because of the score. So usually I never I was actually. I was. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm kind of going off the subject of the score a little bit, but I was thinking about it just a minute ago. The 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 long pause that you have right after the hanging scene of those two, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll give you my, I, I, I'll give you my exact feeling on that is when that happened and they, and they both hung each other. And then I was like, man, fuck, you know, cause I thought, I, you know, cause you did such a great long pause that I, I thought that was the long movie. That was the end of the movie. I was waiting on the credits and I was like, well, man, fuck that ended fucked up. And, you know, I was kind of pissed, and then it came back, and I was like, oh, goody. You know, we're fixing to have something that's, you know, it, it, you know it's going further in. And I was, I was like, because I hate it when movies do that, and especially when it's such a cliche kind of thing. You know, I hate it when movies just stop, and you don't see what's going on after. And, and if that had been the, the ending to the movie, it would have been extremely cliche, and I was, you know, I was, I was geared up to be disappointed. And then when you brought it back, and, you know, she comes back and, you know, she obviously stabs herself in the stomach. I was just like, that that's awesome. It just made this movie so much better unless, to have it that unless, way. Unless that ending is the usual suspect, you know, and like that, he was gone, you know, and then it works brilliantly. Yeah. Right. You don't need to know. Yeah. I, right. I, I got, yeah, that is one of the best endings ever. Guys, you have to watch this movie. It is. It is by far one of the the best updated revenge flicks that you can really have, because um, we haven't really had like an amazing amazing revenge flick for the American audience. As we, we I don't see that many revenge flicks in America anymore. Most of them are still being done. Like obviously, uh, Korea is very very big on revenge flicks. Um, so is Japan. But we, we have a little bit less over here, and this by so, far... So is Mel Gibson. 90% of his films are revenge films. <laughs> yeah. That's true. But, yeah, but I'm not talking action revenge films. I'm not talking Taken. Yeah. I'm yeah. talking about, like, actual horror revenge films. And... Unless it's shitty remakes, like, you know, the shitty remake of I Spit on Your Grave or the shitty one of uh, Last House on the Left. I didn't think that the remake of I Spit on Your Grave was shitty. Uh... I did. I hated it. I like both the remakes, but they lack the punch of the original movie. 
which is I that's think why I don't what, like them. What? Yeah, I was gonna say that's probably why Kenneth doesn't like them. But this movie is is a very much an updated, uh, less rapey version of that. <laughs> um, it is what you one you have to see because at no point is this movie boring. The pacing is fantastic, and that's one thing that always gets me. If a movie has bad pacing, I don't care how good it is. I'm going to call it out. I, you can, Because that's the one thing I always give shit to The Dark Knight. I'm sorry, Christopher Nolan. That movie has some of the worst pacing I've ever seen. It just oh, fucking drags. I know, Kenneth. It drags, though. And <sighs> with this one, th- th- there is no drag in this movie. It is constantly moving forward. It is constantly, constantly keeping you interesting. And it's constantly having you trying to guess what's going to happen next. Or how they're going to do this. Or how they're going to get away with it. And... It keeps you intrigued the entire time. Well, see, that's I, what I was going to say earlier. As, as an editor, you know, I, it's uh, it's actually something Kevin Smith told me in an interview I did with him. It's still on YouTube somewhere, but it's, uh, you know, kill kill your babies, you know. Just if it doesn't work, if the line falls flat, if it's not a line that's necessary to tell the plot, get rid of it. If you can speed anything up, just do it, especially in your indie film. Like if people turned it on. They're going to click click off just as quickly unless you you give them something that's going to hold their attention. And I, uh, you know, I have a short attention span, so I watch it and try try to give it a very honest thing. Like, if I'm bored, the audience is bored here. Something's got to change. Yeah, I'm. I, that, that's a great way to look at it, guys. We should start well, doing that for this podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll leave then. I thought well, we kicked you off already. You've been replaced. <laughs> Well, I think this. I, I, I think the Scarehouse has a has it. It definitely has that younger crowd feel, and that's actually something I was going to say earlier, and I just I didn't get around to it. Is that, you know, if this movie had been really marketed for you know the 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 college crowd, it would. I honestly think it would have been one of those that. Uh, that would have been in you know distributed very well in the theaters down here because I think it's a perfect movie for that crowd. You know, I mean, not only is it a story from, you know, uh, sorority girl's point of view. I mean, it's, you got that. But on top of that, I mean, you know, you can have you can have a movie that's about a certain age range, but it's still got the pacing and the slowness for people that are in their 40s. Or you can have the same kind of movie where it's like that, but it's like Mean Girls where it's, you know, it, it's targeted towards, you know, 13 or 14 or 15 year olds. But this one is it, it's a perfect movie. You got a perfect pace for the, the age range of the characters that are in the movie. So I honestly think that if it had been marketed for that, man, you would have, you would have, you would have seen such a big, huge, you know, $200,000 wouldn't have been nothing to you after that. Yeah. Cause universal really like unfriended did really well in theaters, even for being a PG 13 horror movie that a lot of like hardcore horror fans didn't go to because they think PG 13 means terrible. That movie still did extremely well. And this, and I 100% in the scare house could have knocked that out of the park. Easy. Guys, I agree. I'm getting in the bathtub and I have the toaster plugged in now. I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's the thing with, uh, even if you make movies that people like, you know, if, uh, I always say it's like in Canada, it's like the, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around it to make a sound, I go like, if a movie's made in Canada and no one watches it, did it ever exist? Uh, did it apologize um, it's for very, itself it's interesting though like you know scarehouse played theatrical in, in philippines and some other countries and it, it's been released 
and in several several countries. Uh, I only ever find out about it because people tweet at the Scarehouse account and I go, oh, I guess it's out in the Philippines now. It's a very, very weird system and time for independent film where there's just so much content and so much competition. And without somebody that's willing to, you know, it, it, to do a movie right, you know, even an Unfriended, there's millions of dollars being spent to market that film, you know. So they're really gambling and betting on it, making millions and millions back. So so I, I do understand sometimes when companies don't want to take that risk and don't believe that everything is a is a surefire hit. But what is nice to see is, you know, we're sitting here doing this podcast now. The film originally was released theatrical in Canada in uh, October of 2014. But now it's just getting its Blu-ray release in the U.S. Um, it's going to be, I can't say what cable network, but it's going to have a cable network broadcast at Halloween time uh in the u.s so it kind of just keeps finding a life and people keep discovering it which is you know more than we could we could ask for uh like i said you're just always happy if somebody watches it and it's the same with music videos you know sometimes i make a music video and go eh, I, don't, I don't know i don't know if people will dig this band or whatever but it'll it'll end up with millions of views and sometimes you work super hard on something i go this is the best fucking music video i've ever made and it'll be like ten thousand views you're like you just have to kind of accept that you made it you were happy with it and if if some people find it and like it then hey you made it for the right reasons yeah and i was gonna say so how did the horror pack thing come up was it approached to you or did, was it approached to, like you said universal owns the american rights uh no not not anymore they don't uh it, it was a company called parade deck films here in the u.s i think they've done a few other titles with horror pack they're the ones who brought horror pack to our attention and and set that up and i just i didn't know what horror pack was but you know i subscribed to loot crate and a few other things the monthly thing and as soon as they said it to me i said oh my god that's brilliant what horror fan wouldn't subscribe to that and then they said would we mind you know signing a thousand copies or whatever it was um to to be the the, one of the exclusives, the sign copy. And I said, yeah, of course, that sounds great. Like, that's the thing. I'll, I'll do anything for my movie. It, it's my baby. I'll go to conventions. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes or whatever works to promote it. Um, it's actually part, part of what's uh, been inspiring about the release of Scarehouse and sometimes lack of release is the next horror film that I'm doing. I'm actually going to 100% self-distribute and self-market, you know, because I, like I said, I cut trailers I've got uh, a great friend of mine that designs websites and does online advertising, and, and we're going to try to make a smaller cost-contained film and, and try and do it 100% ourselves. And that way, if it fails, if people don't find out about it, we have no one to blame but ourselves, and we can't point the finger at any distributor. But at the same time, if it works, then we'll reap all of the benefits. Because that, that's part of the disappointing thing sometimes is you put it in the hands of someone else or you sign a deal – and not only do they have the potential to not market the film to its fullest potential, but then they also reap the benefit and keep most of the profit, if not all of the profit. Um, so you, you sort of lose on both fronts. Yeah. And well, and when you do do this new horror film, come back and talk to us because like, we recently joined a network of podcasts called Horophilia. Um, okay. Which is big. In fact, uh, Bloomhouse just did an article about you know 10 po horror podcasts you should listen to. And one of the podcasts on our network, network, uh, the Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, were mentioned on that that uh, list. So by That's all amazing. means, come back to us, and we will like obviously come to our show, but we'll also set you up with you know uh, some of the bigger shows on our network. Well, hey, I, I'm happy. That, that's what I mean. Like one of one of the greatest experiences. Was, I mean, first off, shout out to Rebecca and the staff over at Blumhouse.com because they're killing it with content, and and it's so good that they're 
you know, they really do mine deep and find all of the all of the big and small podcasts and films. Like they, their content is amazing. I read Blumhouse.com every day. Love those people so much. But one of the greatest things about making a horror movie, you know, I, have, I haven't made a horror feature film before the Scarehouse, but the going to the conventions and the horror film fest, like you, you, as much as like Star Trek fans or Star Wars fans, like hardcore fans that are just the most loving interesting down-to-earth human beings and the amount of people you know like yourselves that start podcasting things out of the love of the thing that they you know a, a love for the thing they love um it, it's amazing and, and how welcoming people are and and how accepting they are of films and, and just want to be part of it that's something i didn't know about or expect and it, it's been one of the better things and, and made some really good like the, the folks over at the new york city horror film fest um my my wife did an episode, Sarah did an episode of uh, Law and Order SVU back in November. She was shooting, and I went to New York with her, and and you know I end up going for brunch with them and drinks with them. You 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 make so many great friends, and that's ultimately the the best thing about my job is that I get to meet new people and travel and and make friends all over the damn place and and all people that love movies. So we never run out of anything to talk about. So really impressed with sort of the the horror community out there, and, and excited to. To make another one and, and uh, you know, see if we can't get even more involved. Yeah, I was going to say, especially um, having a resurgence for the Scarehouse two years or three years later with Horror Pack. Because um, I was actually surprised when I did my unboxing um, for that Horror Pack. And I got a comment from the official Scarehouse YouTube. And I was oh, really? Like, <laughs> yeah. which I'm know, a, Yeah. Our social media person is is on it, even yeah. even years later. You know that's great. And I was just like, "Holy shit!" And uh, and then I started talking with you, and I was like, "Oh, I, you got to come on the show." And you're actually our first um, like professional guest. interview. Yeah, you're our first yeah. like professional guest. We've uh, only had like other podcasters come on the show, so you're the first like legit professional one we've had on. So now everyone there. can hear this and be like, "I am not fucking going on that show." Been a long, a long time since I've taken anyone's virginity, so I'll add this to my uh, my bed my bedpost notches. Nice. I appreciate that, man. <laughs> and I didn't cry at all this time. <laughs> Me either. Not like with my uncle. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just made me think of uh, Patton Oswalt stand up and like, come on down to Uncle Touchy's naked puzzle basement. You know, <laughs> you won't wear a shirt and you'll cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so good. But yeah, fucking um and so I and I remember one of the things you said to me in the message is um because I told you the episode we were recording at the time or had just finished recording was Puppet Master. And okay. uh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you said you, you got some information on Charles Band. Kid, <laughs> what, what's up with this? Uh, I know a story. Uh Friends, friends, uh, uh, I can't name any names, but I just, uh, I, like, I, you know, I was discussing with you, Charles Band and Full Moon. I mean, they, they to me, they started behind-the-scenes features and, and special features because every VHS copy would have, you know, the preview show of their upcoming movies and a look at how they made the movie. And that was part of the fun of renting one of their movies. And it was sort of genius to do all of this expanded content because they, they owned it. And why, why wouldn't you promote the next thing? And then when DVD came along, that became the standard. Um, but all of those series and direct to video things, I used to love puppet master and all of those things when I, when I was a kid, but, um, a f- 
God, I can't name any names. So let, let's just say I know a story of uh, some of the dark days of of uh, of their company not working out so well, and uh, in his his personal checks bouncing at uh, for a kid's bar mitzvah. A, a friend of mine who had his bar mitzvah, and, and Char, Char, Charlie was invited, and uh, you know the check that he wrote him for his bar mitzvah bounced. So wasn't al- wasn't always the best businessman, even though he was making movies we all loved. Yeah, yeah, I. Uh... Definitely, some of the stuff he's done, I'm like, that's questionable. But at the same time, they're responsible for for some movies that are just fantastic, like The Howling. I love the original Howling. Um, and oh yeah, of course. The, yeah. the Puppet Master movies. Uh, I haven't watched some of their newer stuff, like with the gingerbread thingamajigs. Gingerbread. I, have, I haven't either. There's there's some fun things like that, or like bands where they kind of fall off my radar, and like a decade later, something like go. Oh shit! They got five albums I've never heard, and you just dive back in and like it's kind of like binging on Netflix and stuff. You know, sometimes you just forget about a series or or a company, and then you and then you know a decade later go, oh, I've got so much stuff to watch now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I grew up watching Full Moon, so you know, uh, catching up with it and things like that, like Killjoy and the Evil Bong and all the rest of those. I mean, now it's just getting to where it's so ridiculous that it's great. You know, so I love watching those. Yeah. So oh, next on my watching list is Killer Pinata from that horror pack. That that covering <laughs> got my got my view. I gotta find. Out. I still haven't watched it yet because I haven't fully dealt with the pinata rape thing. Um, shout out to ten out of ten Derek uh, for telling me that there someone fucking rapes a pinata in that movie. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess it's better than raping a person. Yeah. I mean, well, I, well, here's the question though: if the pinata is, like, it becomes a sentient being and it can. And it can think and kill. Is it better? I mean, that's like saying, is it better to rape a dog than a person? Um, I'm going to... Uh, I don't know. Like... 50-50. I don't know. I don't know what I love. Do I love humans or dogs more? I can't tell. Dogs. Humans are scum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm still curious positive. to know. I'm still curious to know of whether the pinata rape is the reason for the movie. Like, if it's a revenge flick based on this pinata getting raped by someone. The pinata comes to life because the sperm somehow mixes with a Snickers bar and now the fucking... I mean, if that's not if that's not the plot, that's the sequel with ease, for sure. <laughs> we found your next movie. Uh... <laughs> pinata 2. Pinata 2, Rapey Boogaloo. Uh, <laughs> it to the big load. <laughs> oh my god! What candy company can we get to finance this? Who? <laughs> Who? Hey, his Reese's, Reese's pieces stopped selling since ET. Is that finally dying down? Let's hit them up. Yeah. No, do you know that not only do they have Reese's cups where they put Reese's pieces in there, they have Reese's cups where they just put chocolate chips in there. Yeah, those it, aren't very good. Yeah, Every, the, the whole the whole world of like fast. Fast food and junk food and breakfast cereals has gone fucking berserk. I like I don't I don't eat a whole lot of breakfast cereal, but when I walk down the aisle recently, I'm just like, there's this fruit flavor and these kind of marshmallows and chocolatey chocolate with chocolate milk. And you're just like, holy fuck! Whatever happened to just regular Cheerios? Yeah, it's insane. I was actually in the grocery store earlier today, and I I really thought about that. I'm going down through there, and the whole side of the aisle is nothing but different cereals. It's like, it's, like the, every, it's kind of like everything now with like, uh, 
you know, movies, remakes and sequels, remakes and sequels, remakes and sequels. Just like, come on, somebody has to have original ideas out there that that we won't mind watching. I yeah, do, but see, but the I bad, need a very expensive budget. The bad thing about that is, is like, you know, uh, uh, for instance, your idea for your uh, for your other movie. You know what I'm saying? I mean that. Uh, but that's a, that's a badass idea. But at the same time, look where it's at. You know, and it, it well, the, sucks yeah, when I, I hear about that. But the real thing about any any film project is like there's a there's thousands of brilliant ideas out there, or finished scripts. It's just it's that Matt, you know, you know how many people and how much money and how many yeses have like the perfect storm of things that have to happen for any movie to, to work. Yeah, because you look at all the movies that are in development hell that like, OK, so uh, in, next year Meg comes out. Uh, Giant Shark movies got Jeff Statham in him. And uh, Meg, the novel, is actually one of my favorite books of all time. I love that book. It's such a fun adventure. That book has been in development hell for a movie literally since it came out. And, and it came out in 97, I think. 1997 is when the first book came out. And like literally the rights sold like the next year and development hell forever. Well, yeah, it's it's like you know it took it took the Hobbit ten years to get made after Lord of the Rings because of rights issues and infighting with Peter Jackson and New Line Cinema, and they all knew they were going to make three billion dollars off of those fucking things, and it still took that long. Yeah, it's it's fucking ridiculous, and I'm just like, guys, can we all just shake hands and make this fucking movie? I know I understand it's about money, but we'll give you money. We'll we'll do that. And see that it, to me, that's the part that sucks, you know, is, is you take people that really have talent and they have these great ideas. But, the, but the, you know, overall, it's the almighty dollar that rules the world. And and I think it, to me, it really, really sucks, because if you go back, you know, 40, 50 years, you still had your Hollywood side of it where it was all about making money and the, and the Hollywood lifestyle and whatever. But you look at movies like The Exorcist or things like that. The Exorcist to me is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And everything just kind of came together. I mean, because the exorcist movie was made a very short amount of time after, you know, the book was written. And so everything just kind of came together. And nowadays, like you said, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just constant jumping through hoops to get a movie made. Yeah. that's it's, you know, I've, I've had, I've had more movies not get made than get made, you know? And, uh, you know, I had one, uh, I can't, I can't say the plot on the podcast, but it was such an original take on a slasher film. Like I'd never heard anything like, it. I didn't write it. It's the first time I'd option a script from another writer. Uh, and it was horror comedy. We had, uh, one of the producers of Tucker and Dale versus evil involved in it. We had nice. a $2 budget. We had everything ready to go. And the writer would not agree to any terms to sell his script. First time writer, you know, trying to, you know, play the big man of like wants his million dollar deal. Like all these things that just don't exist anymore. And, uh, and would not agree to anything. And we had to walk away because the investors and the Canadian government, again, the producer, are like, look, if he's not going to sign it, we can't make the movie. We have to go put our money somewhere else. And I just sat there in the middle of it watching it implode because he wouldn't do it. So, like, there's so many things that can go wrong in trying to get anything made. So, like I say, it's always to me. I, I actually want to start a. I've been working on a documentary for a couple of years now called The Sundance Kids, which is about five filmmakers that I know that had the hardest time making their first feature film where they went, you know, and all of us said the same thing when we were young, you know, you make it for 25 grand, you put it in Sundance and that's it. You win. And then you get a Hollywood career just like Kevin Smith and just like, you know, Rodriguez or whoever else. And, um, you know, what the reality of making a film is to finish your first film is, is a 
fucking nightmare. If you've never done it before and had to live in the trenches for 25 days with no money and people quitting and all the bullshit that goes into like things that can go wrong. Um, so the fact that anybody ever finishes a film, I want to make this documentary that shows these five incredibly bizarre stories of first time filmmakers. But the larger idea is to then start a film festival called the Sundance Kids Film Festival. And the idea is that your film has to have been rejected from at least five of the major festivals, Sundance included, and never screened anywhere by anyone. So we, cause we think it's important, regardless how bad your film turned out or, or the problems that you had making it, if you finished it, you are now a filmmaker who gets to say, I am a filmmaker, I finished it. And even finishing a movie should be celebrated because it's so impossible. You even look at like the Han Solo movie happening right now, firing the directors three weeks before finishing production. It's like at any level of film production, there are massive problems. So when a small group of people in you know, the middle of Ohio or Canada or wherever get together and say, we're going to put all our passions together and make this thing happen. If they finish it, especially if they finish it and make something watchable, that is like, that is some rarefied, amazing space to, to share. Yeah, because the, the truth of the matter is, uh, is for dreams to remain important, a lot of people's dreams have to fail. That That's yeah, the, the exact sad truth of it. And some people are going to get like obviously like for us we want our podcast to be successful we want people to come and listen to our show and communicate with us and and enjoy us and all of that but you know we're in a, a very small pond of podcasts with way bigger fish and so we have to keep striving even though at the end of the day we might be doing this just because we like to and that's okay and and a making a feature film is 20 steps above that because yep. it it does not cost me that much money to do a podcast it mostly just costs my time right um and so for someone to go out on a limb and you hear all the stories and Kevin Smith is a, is a big one of this of people getting money from all over the place to try to make their movie um yep that's uh, i you know the thing is like also my the larger problem with like um film criticism and and social media these days is and it's the same with restaurants or anything is like nobody nobody reports or, or posts about you know I saw a pretty good movie last night I I really enjoyed it everything is held to the standards of it's the best thing I've ever seen or the worst thing I've ever seen or you know everybody only reports on the best and worst experiences cuz that's what's going to get them likes and traction and and, you know, the, to feel good about themselves. So unfortunately, a lot of indie films, you know, and, and average audiences sometimes just don't understand that they're watching an indie film. They don't understand that with less money, with not access to A-list actors all the time, that sometimes, you know, these things are going to be made, but aren't going to be made at the same level what they expect to see. And I really feel like in the age of social media, people don't stop to think or consider the things that they could say or did like about something before they just give it the, uh, you know, an ultimate slam of that's it. One star, one star out of 10 that it, it couldn't, nope, wasn't possibly anyway. And you're like, really? That's the worst, the worst thing you've ever seen or the yeah. worst album you've ever listened to. Nothing has ever been worse than this. Yeah. And, and that's like going with, with, I said, I did not like a night of something strange. I did not watch that movie and judge it based off high-end movies. No, it's an independent film with a lower budget, so I would let acting slide. I would let uh, 
bad special effects slide, anything like that, because I'm not gonna ju- I'm not gonna be like, oh well, this wasn't as good as you know the Friday Thirteenth remake, so fuck this movie. No, Friday Thirteenth remake had a big budget. This did not. So I didn't sit here and go, the movie was bad. Like bad. I was like, it's lowbrow humor, a lot of gross out humor that I'm not a fan of. Yep, that's it's, why all, I- it's all it's all personal taste at the end of the day, and that's the thing. You never you're never gonna please. You're hardly gonna please everybody. So you know, don't try and don't don't sweat it. Um, and I, I have the same thing, you know, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, some of the music videos I direct, I'm not necessarily fans of the band or the song, but it's still, still my job to come up with the story that works for that client and that thing and, uh, and find a creative path. Uh, even if I'm not necessarily a fan, you know, I'm not a huge country music fan. I just finished a country music video. I'm shooting another country music video next week, but it does, it doesn't stop me from doing my, my job. And I'm sure for actors, it's like that, you know, actors have it the worst. They, if they get cast in something, it's probably not their dream role. You know, it's probably not for the dream pay or that, you know, they think the writing could be better or whatever, but that's not their job. Their job is to show up and give their everything and their talent to, to whatever the project is, you know? And I think, and you know, the right, the right people, the right frame of mind can watch and listen to things, even just as fans from the same, the same point. Yeah, no, I, I'm in agreement with you there completely. Uh, one of the things, like, when we do on this podcast, if we watch a movie that's from 1987, we don't want to compare that movie to a movie that came out in 1994. Like, compare it in the time that it came out. If it's, is it cliche then or is it cliche now? Because if it's cliche now, don't, you can't call it cliche. Because it wasn't cliche at the time. Like, and I think a lot of people will just put any movie they see against every movie they've seen, and that's not fair. Keep it in context with its budget, when it was released, how it was made. All of those things matter when you're looking at a movie. When you're, if you're going to critique, critique it, critique it fairly. I like to, uh, I like to take movies that come out in a certain time period, and I will use how the the state of the state of things are like a, a lot of times you'll hear in commentaries and stuff like that where you'll hear how a movie okay this is what was going on because this was the war in vietnam and things like that you know like a movie that came out back in that time period or you know wh- whatever's going on in the world but at the same time you've got to look at what's going on in in the minds of the people at that time you know and uh i'll go back to this one again because yet again you know like i said before the exorcist is one of my favorite movies but at the same time when that movie came out and the others that came out of that time period where you've got, uh, you know, Rosemary's Baby and the ones that really have to deal with Christianity and things like that, movies weren't regularly coming out like that like they are now. Like, you know, every every few months, you know, we've got another Possession movie coming out. But back then that wasn't happening, so it was a new thing. And I think, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I have to say about that particular movie is in 1973, you know, the, the, the religious – the religious connotations that go along with it. It was a perfect time period for that movie to come out because of the way that people react to it and the, and the publicity that it got, you know, I'm one of those firm believers that there's no such thing as positive or negative publicity. Publicity is publicity. And so, you know, pushing it and going further with that and having those things, people hating that movie because they said it was, you know, you, the, the devil had come up from, come up straight from hell and everything else going along with it. You know, all that did was just fuel the fire and make the movie that much more, you know, have that much more of a following and everybody has seen it and everybody knows it. So I think that has a lot to do with the way that we judge movies 
you know, is looking at all the different parameters that are around the time period that it was released and how it affected, you know, not just the effects of the world, but the effect, how it affected the audience. Well, yeah, look at, you know, look at even, even comedy. You know, we, we now live in a post-South Park and a, a post-Family uh, Guy world. But at one point in time, Bart Simpson was too offensive and parents were writing the network to try to get the show canceled. You're like, yeah. Simpson Simpsons is the tamest thing in the world now. Yeah, my mom would let me watch The Simpsons when I was a kid. Yeah, my wife was the same way. She never got to watch The Simpsons when she was a kid. And I'm like, really? I mean, my South, parents Park, didn't... South Park must have just like made those parents, same parents like heads explode. Yeah, but my parents didn't want me to watch Beavis and Butthead either. I did it anyway, but they didn't want me to. Yeah. <laughs> my my dad wouldn't let me watch South Park, but he had no problem renting The Evil Dead for me. Well, so. well, on all of, on all of this note, my wife's not going to let me eat dinner unless I uh, wrap this up soon. And, That's uh, a good point. Oh, and tell her hi, you've boss, all, and you've all you've also you've also all seen how how well she can work a kitchen knife. So uh. no, that's true. <laughs> okay, so her, before, her threats are not in vain. Yeah. So before we go. Pimp out whatever you need to pimp out, like whatever you're doing next, where they can find you, where they can reach you, all of that. Throw it at us. Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty accessible. It's uh, GavinMichaelBooth.com, and from there you can find my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm always shooting a bunch of music videos. I'm, I'm prepping to shoot a new horror movie later this year and, and a non-horror movie, a nice little uh, unromantic love story, I'll call it. Um and yeah, so I'm shooting two movies this year and a bunch of music videos, and um, that's that's it. Just uh, the rest of the time, try to take some time off this summer and live life, see some friends, and uh, you know, continue my. I've only been living in uh, in the U.S. as a as a green card holder for a couple of years, so even though I've lived in L.A. now for a couple of years, I still haven't really explored much. I haven't been out to Joshua Tree, so it's trying to. Trying to live life and not just make work the only thing that I ever do. But with Scarehouse, uh, you know, it is going to be on sale on Amazon and uh, other retailers that still carry these Blu-ray things that some people still collect, apparently. And uh, it's going to have some TV air dates. And there is the ScarehouseMovie.com uh, that has everything. Scarehouse on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you know, find us there, follow along, and like I say, anybody listening, any other questions, anything else you have about the movie, by all means, reach out. Somebody will always respond. We're uh, we're big fans of anybody who wants to take the time to watch the movie and uh, and be engaged by anything related to the film afterwards. Yes, and by all means, uh, tell Sarah we loved her performance, and we don't think she's a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually. That that moment, even when I did my audio commentary, that made me laugh out loud. That's the same. That's right after the uh, well, that was unscripted. Yeah, and then just all follows it up with like, what? Not even not even phased by the murder that just happened. Just like, why does everybody think I'm a lesbian? You know, because she says something about you know, her being a dyke or something earlier in the in the thing. Um, I really like that. And Sarah Sarah laughs about that because she you know in real life she's very tomboyish and you know surfs would rather go surfing than shopping and does all this action stunt stuff so quite often people people believe she's a lesbian or cast as lesbian roles so we just kind of work that into the into the script uh that was fantastic um so without further ado guys please check out the scare house check out everything he's got going on uh it's it's wonderful for all of us here at kill the cast uh we'll see you next time all links are in the description for facebook facebook uh group our YouTube, all of that nonsense, horror pack, 
buy a Kill the Cash shirt, whatever you want to do. Keep an eye out for the Scarehouse coming out on Blu-ray because trust me, it is worth the money for the special feature of watching them go through the actual Scarehouse. That is worth every penny. <laughs> Um, I uh, thank thank you guys for having me on, and I also just point out I love the name Kill the Cast. It's a great name for a podcast. I'm actually proud that was of that all one. Jerry. That yeah. was, and that you'll was probably all me. will probably have you will have a lot of directors on the show like myself to be like I have some cast members I'd like to kill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's we actually do that every once in a while when we review a movie. We'll talk about what cast member we just wanted to kill. We just hated them, wanted them dead. I don't you have any for yours. I just. I mean, I love A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's my favorite horror movie ever made. It's always been my ah, favorite. Ah, fuck you, Jerry. Fuck you, Jerry. <laughs> Why do you hate Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah, I don't sure like. I, I don't like Nightmare on Elm Street. I think the concept is great, but I think the execution was terrible. Oh, I I mean, I saw it when I was young, but you know, I hadn't seen it in, in six or seven years. I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and like, my God, do I want to kill Nancy? Thank Heather you. Holy shit, is she annoying. And I was watching with a friend. My friend's wife had never seen it before. That's how I ended up watching it. And she goes like, oh, my God, I hope she dies first because, like, if she's the main character, kill me. And I was like, wow, like, she is a pretty bad actress. But, you know, you watch things when you're a kid sometimes and you just you don't notice any of that. But, the, you know, the older you get, the more viewings you give something. It starts to it does start to fall apart a little bit. But it's the magic of the the story and everything else that, that trumps trumps all of those elements. It's like I always say, like, listen, like, Clerks is an ugly shot movie with bad sound, mostly terrible bands on the soundtrack, and some of the most horrific, boring, flat actors of all time. But that script and that concept is so fucking good and was so fucking fresh at the time um, that the movie will hold true forever. Yeah. The dialogue was superb in that. Yeah. Yep. And and if all of you have not heard our Nightmare on Elm Street uh, episode, listen to it. Because if you love Nightmare on Elm Street, you're going to fucking hate me. But most of my complaints are towards Heather. Because I think if they were replaced her with any actress who knew how to close their fucking mouth, the movie would have been <laughs> way more enjoyable. Um, you didn't kill her, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's so fucking terrible. Oh, don't, don't get me started on Nightmare on Elm Street. We'll be here forever. So for Kill the Cast, thank you for joining us. Uh, for Gavin Michael Booth, who may or may not be related to uh, a certain person who killed a president. Uh, that's to be <laughs> remained. Cause I, I could s- say something about creating a sequel to that event, but I'll probably lose my green card. Probably. <laughs> 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 so, oh man thank you for joining us uh jay any parting words thank you it's uh it's been a real pleasure this is a lot of fun very nice uh kenneth any parting words same thing man it was awesome we really appreciate it and, oh, no, and it's all, all all thanks from this side i love it. anybody who wants to take the time to, to help promote our movie and uh and shower me with praise for loving the movie i'll never say no <laughs> yeah no i didn't suck your dick enough on this episode honestly um yeah i mean i've had my dick in my hand the whole time i just like these guys are so excited i don't know what to do with it (laughs) tell me about how good my direction was tell me yeah (laughs) Um, and of course gavin do you have any last words uh no i'll just leave it at i had my dick in my hands the whole time very good and uh adding that to imdb right now (laughs) he did a podcast jacking off the entire time Perfect, and I won't. I won't ever take it down. Yep, you can stay there forever. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait till your mom hears this interview. Um, <laughs> oh God! Yeah. Anyway, Sorry, uh, 
Yeah, for real. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will see you next time on Kill the Cast.